Hello out there, I'm Will. And I'm Whitney. And you're listening to Yelling About Superheroes. This is your episode idea, you go first. Okay. Hey guys, um, so this week we're going to be talking about something that's been kind of bugging me these past couple weeks, specifically the idea of vigilantism and vigilantes and how that connects to various forms of privilege. Because it has not escaped my notice that a lot of, you know, self-styled or media-dubbed vigilante characters in superhero stories are also white men in some way, and often but not always like rich white men as well. So today we're going to talk about how the concept of vigilantism is affected by the relative privilege, or perhaps even lack thereof, of those who usually enact it in, you know, run-of-the-mill superhero stories. Looking at you, Bruce Wayne. Yeah, I was gonna say, let's start with Batman, because honestly, I think Batman was what sort of, like, got these cogs turning in my head. We've been playing through the Arkham games lately and stuff, and, you know, Batman is, I think, one of the reasons why I'm not incredibly interested in Batman as a character. Like, not the only reason, I have multiple reasons. But one of the major reasons is that he's just like a rich white guy with a lot of toys. And that's like his primary character trait in a lot of Batman media. I feel like he's very easy to mischaracterize. I know there are animated series and stuff out there that give Batman a lot more character depth than perhaps, you know, Christopher Nolan's Batman trilogy, which admittedly I have not rewatched in a while. But I just have a lot of difficulty finding, you know, rich white dude who broods and has a lot of toys and a really extensive R&D department. I have, I have a lot of difficulty finding that compelling. So yeah, and he's not the, he's probably the best example of a vigilante superhero who's really just a rich white guy with a lot of toys, but he's not the only one either. Um, I feel like Oliver Queen is kind of like, this is kind of ironic, but like dollar store Batman in a way. What Batman? Dollar store Batman. He's bat. Yeah, he's Batman, but green and slightly less cool. There are definitely interpretations <laughs> of character that are like that. Um, if you watch Arrow, which he, I ooh, I can't do that. I've heard way too much about it. He has some interesting um, characterization going on there, but in a lot of ways, he is just Batman with a bow. In a lot of the time, it seems from a lot of that show that the writers wanted to make a Batman show, but they couldn't, so they settled for Arrow. Which isn't to say Yeah, that feels like exactly what I was getting at. Like, settling for Arrow. Yeah, and there are things in that show that are definitely very Arrow-specific. It's not just, like, Batman except Green, but you can definitely see where there's things going for stories very much in line with what Batman's like. But... In addition to that, I admittedly have not read much Green Arrow stories myself, but I do know that, especially in the comics, there is a pretty extensive history of Green Arrow, and in some cases, Oliver Queen, as the like civilian personality, I guess, having a little more of a social conscience or like social. Yeah, you know what? I have heard about that. Batman doesn't really have much of a history of that, does he? I think, yeah. I think it's certainly like Wayne Enterprises is surely involved in various charitable exercises. You know, I'm sure that that I feel like that's not really emphasized too terribly. It's definitely not. Batman doing Batman things is probably not the only way Bruce Wayne is trying to fight crime and help Gotham. But yeah, I don't know if probably cuts it honestly. It's really the only way that the stories ever seem to focus on. Yeah, which... Although it's not exclusively. We do see times, like I know of a Batman comic, where he ended up hiring through Wayne Enterprises a particular guy that he, he had originally um, beaten up as Batman and helped like turn his life around and stuff like that. And it was sort mm-hmm. of a side story that implies that that's something that happens occasionally. Okay, but it's been a very long time since I read any of that, and it's certainly an afterthought in a lot of what Batman does. Yeah, I really... Batman strikes me as... You know, people people love to talk about, like, Superman as the ultimate, you know, white male power fantasy or whatever, and, like, so often those 
claims completely ignore Superman's Jewish origins. So Batman, to me, really honestly feels like more of the type of male power fantasy, wish fulfillment character that these people are claiming Superman is. Because in a way, Batman is like, you know, peak capitalist hero or whatever. And it's like, from admittedly what little I've seen of Batman, this is just me kind of shooting from the hip here. But I don't know. He just seems like a guy who can't, you know, psychologically or physically get out of his hometown and can't get himself out of this rut where he's like trying to deal with his childhood traumas in kind of unhealthy ways rather than actually like looking more objectively at the situation his hometown is in and finding real concrete ways to fix it. He's like, he's like Jeff Bezos in a mask. And I feel like I that's, feel like that's Jeff, what people make of him, quite literally, because... I don't think you know, Jeff Batman Bezos has nearly skin. as much concern for any city at all. Okay, that is true. That is true. Saying that is probably, like, a legitimate insult to Batman. But anyways... I think, no, but you, I you mean, see what I'm saying, though? Like, I mean, yeah, that's a long-established thing with the character. Batman is not a mentally healthy no, person. God. And I don't think and that most of the people who've written Batman or have been part of creating Batman stories would really disagree with you. Do they, would they, or do they even like really get that? I feel like, cause I feel I, like that gets glossed over a lot of enough the most that famous... I feel like people just get lost in a sea of, oh, Batarangs are cool, and Batman beats people up, and he's super rich and stuff. A lot of the most iconic Batman stories, like The Killing Joke is one of them, centers on Batman's particular mental But that's Frank Miller, right? So issues. how much of that... No, The Killing Joke is Alan Moore. Oh, Alan Moore. Freaking... You know, same diff, honestly, as far as I'm concerned. Not really. Alan Moore is a lot... Alan Moore went a lot less off his gourd than Frank Miller did. Okay, fair, but also I feel like there is a... Okay, what am I trying to say here? It's like telling a story about Batman that really truly comprehends his level of like long-standing emotional trauma and like sort of respecting that almost. That's different from telling a story about, you know... Man pain, capital M, trademark, copyright. So I feel like with these white male vigilantes, we're dealing with usually a couple different categories here. Rich white men who punch people and think that counts as playtime. And men who've experienced like legitimate emotional trauma, but that trauma gets subsumed into man pain and bullets and grittiness. Batman kind of falls into both categories, but for the latter, I'm thinking like, you know, the Punisher and stuff like that. And to a degree, Daredevil as well, I think. Daredevil and the Punisher are both interesting examples. Yeah. I would say... So, like, I guess my larger question is, to the degree that trauma informs a lot of these heroes, and I think it does kind of have an effect on Oliver Queen, too. Doesn't he have some, like, big, you know, inciting incident in his life? Oliver Queen's backstory involves being marooned on an island for, in at least some interpretations, several years, and having to survive on his own... At least in the show, it was also immediately after his fa- his father had also died in that uh, mm-hmm. accident. Okay. I don't know if that's consistent across all the different interpretations of Arrow. Yeah. So I guess my main question for mainly these four examples of white dude vigilantes is to what degree is their vigilantism driven by unhealthy coping mechanisms for their own personal trauma and how does that almost like skew their notions of what constitutes justice or like are they so blinded by their own poorly dealt with mental issues that they're not really fixing the problems they purport to solve so i think i don't know to spitball on this a little bit from the doyleist sort of perspective just based on like why these characters were created in these ways anyway. Yeah, that's a really good question. It basically comes down to the fact that a normal, like sane person is not going to go out at night and beat the crap out of people is what mm-hmm. it comes down to in a lot of cases. That's fair. You know, like why is Bruce Wayne, rather than just doing whatever normal rich dude things, dressing up like a bat to beat people up, it's that's not something a entirely mentally stable person is going to do. Yeah, and I, I and 
basically they, they write in a particular I think for the sake of relatively easy characterization they created the characters with particular motivations for what they do often based in some simple and easily understandable past incident like that hmm and I, okay I, before we recorded this I was reading another one of my academic articles this one claiming that The Dark Knight Rises is not actually the conservative allegory that a lot of um, film critics claimed it was. Again, I have not rewatched The Dark Knight Rises since it came out, or really any of the those Batman films in a while. But I was reminded that what Bane claims is his, you know, primary motivation in that film is that Batman, you know, dressing up like a bat and beating, beating people up isn't really fixing the underlying problems that cause all the crime in Gotham in the first place, like all the, you know, economic inequality and stuff like that. So, yeah. like... and he's not wrong. No, he isn't, which is the thing. And, like, I guess I struggle with the fact that these, you know, incredibly emotionally troubled and misguided characters are still being presented as, you know, white dude power fantasies anyway, despite all their emotional trauma and other harrowing stuff they've certainly got going on in their heads like they're still batman is still you know like trey cool as far as a lot of people are concerned i think to a degree i wonder like if that's because batman has always seemed like a cipher to me honestly like perhaps the most undercharacterized character of like all superheroes Ever so he's really easy to reinterpret. Like you can get the camera. I don't think it's a matter of being undercharacterized. I think it's a matter of just being so old and having been so dramatically reinterpreted so many different ways across so many different media. I actually I mean I wonder to what degree those aren't like kind of the same thing. That would be a good debate to get into later, maybe. Um, I'm actually pretty confident that Batman is the single most reinterpreted fictional character outside of religion and mythology. I was going to say, you mean other than Jesus? Yeah, pretty much. There are some real whack reinterpretations of Jesus running out there, let me tell you. But, yeah, I mean, Adam West's Batman and, like, Christian Bale's Batman are incredibly dramatically different in, like, to what extent they're a power fantasy and to what extent they're portrayed as both doing the right thing and as characters that the audience would actually want to be because i think most good batman stories don't really take the approach of oh wouldn't it be so cool to be batman you know because he is a like like you mentioned he's a character who underwent a trauma and never really recovered from it and lives a pretty unhealthy and not sure what particular adjective is going for here but mm. yeah i'm not sure either i feel like there are a lot of different adjectives yeah. you could go for here i think in a in a batman it's kind of pathetic in a way almost in in a batman story that is i would suppose competently written and not supposed to be like a parody or a deliberately like lighthearted interpretation of the character um you shouldn't come away thinking, oh man, it'll be so cool to be Batman. I mean, authorial intent is one thing, but I feel like regardless of, you know, the presence of stories that actually take Batman at face value, people still kind of interpreted him as, wow, people, sorry, that did not come out right. What? People still interpret him as, you know cool dude to the max that sounds so pathetic i don't know why i chose that particular phrasing but you know you know what i mean though like people still interpret things that way i think it's interesting i think probably because because... the character has such a long like publication and screen history but also because like i i think there are because perhaps like underlying at a surface level at a surface level he is a cool character and to hear kind of a summary of it oh he's this super rich guy who's insanely buff and super well-trained and genius and oh, has God, he's all these... genius too? What a pretentious guy. I got Anyway. And has all these cool gadgets that he uses to fight crime and clean up his city and all that. It 
sounds like a cool premise and a cool character who would be who it would be like enjoyable to be as in a sort of yeah, because who among sense. us wouldn't want to be super rich? I will admit, I it would be nice to but, be like a little richer than I am. Yeah, so that's true. But I then the dichotomy that. of his unhinged mental state to you know varying degrees and different interpretations, as well as the frequent trauma and difficulties that he has been through and continues to put himself through for the sake of his crusade is sort of another tax to the character that takes that thing that seems really cool on the surface level and is like, no, this actually isn't that good thing. Yeah, I mean... And I think that's... Yeah. that's I think that is the sort of point and counterpoint that a lot of these Batman stories end up focusing on. Okay, I can... But I think we I at talk, least hope they execute that well. But I think we've talked a lot about Batman... And we can probably jump around to a few other I mean, characters. There is one other thing I want to address. And it's something I was only just putting together today while I was watching you play through um, Arkham Origins and stuff. And this is a way in which, I don't know, Batman is almost a foil or counterpoint to other vigilante characters. Like, he is incredibly insistent that... Okay, you know, like, a lot of other, like, vigilantes operate under the assumption that the existing justice system is not enough and they have to almost like finish the job or whatnot. Like Punisher is the like epitome of that ethos and Daredevil even like as well a little bit. And I'm thinking also of, this is kind of an exception to the white male vigilante rule, but um, Kate Spencer, Manhunter, um, she was, she's in the Birds of Prey book I'm reading right now. And the sort of bio of her in the front of the book explicitly says like she's a, prosecutor who gets frustrated when criminals get away so she decides to put on the you know vigilante mantle and take him down so all these heroes are doing what they see as they, they think they're finishing a job left undone whereas batman is incredibly insistent on sort of relinquishing control to the authorities in a way like he's always like oh let's drop these people off the gcpd front doors or whatever or like leave an anonymous tip or whatnot and he's he's always he never kills people i think in part in part because you know he's batman and very holier than thou and also like moral code whatnot but also he and this is something that i think is incredibly like clueless rich white guy about him he insists on bringing these criminals to justice but that really ignores the fact that like the justice system both in comics and in the real world is incredibly flawed the justice system and the people who enact it are not like impossibly impartial neutral arbiters or whatnot criminals walk all the time on people are unjustly persecuted and to to have that much faith in the criminal justice system to finish the job that he's kind of helping them along with that to me i think seems like one of the biggest ways in which batman's privilege very much makes him unaware of a lot of the realities of what goes on in gotham and makes him like personally very unrelatable to me and just i have a lot of i have no patience for that sort of it's naive it really is I, th I think it's incredibly naive of him. What's his alternative, though? Just going out and, what, he can't exactly throw people in a I mean, prison somewhere or kill them himself. I mean, that's true because we saw how well that went with Arkham Asylum. But, like, I think he'd be much better served by actually, like, lobbying for substantive criminal justice reform and, you know, fixing things like the school or prison pipeline and yada, yada, yada. And actually, like going after the root causes of the problem rather than attacking the system, the, the system, I, the symptoms is what I mean. Like instead of, you know, beating the, beating up the criminals who pop up, like, I don't know, warts or boils or something like that, like actually devoting his vast financial resources and like almost celebrity power, I feel like as Bruce Wayne and also kind of as Batman, like Batman could 
go on like a PR campaign for this or whatever. Yeah. To like and actually fight this. St- it just frustrates me so much that he. And that's something do- that doesn't appear to Wayne see Enterprises does do generally off yeah. screen, like I've talked about before. Yeah, true. And to a degree. We see I, it a little bit in the opening to Arkham City as well, where he's actually actively and personally speaking out against that particular gross miscarriage of justice. What you mean, like. It's been, it's been a while since we played the Arkham City. In like the beginning the, of Arkham City, Bruce like Wayne Like, what specifically is, is he speaking out against? Just refresh my memory. The existence of Arkham City. Which, Arkham City is just a terrible idea in the first place. So, yeah. like... Yeah, it is. But so was Arkham Asylum, honestly. It was... Ugh. Yeah. And I mean... That's kind of the major point To a degree, games. it's like... To a degree, I know that on a metatextual level, these problems cannot really be solved because if Batman, you know, tackled actual economic inequality in Gotham, there would be no, you know, typical Batman stories to tell anymore. Although I think it'd be more interesting if whoever writes the character next decided to actually like go beyond those, this well-trod territory and sort of explore beyond that. I think that'd be really interesting, but like on a sort of I guess political economic level, I understand why the status quo has to remain where it is. It's still frustrating for me though. Sure. Yeah. So yeah, that's my, I guess, soapboxing about Batman. All right. In other characters who aren't Batman. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about like how these other like vigilante dudes contrast with, um, yeah. So Batman and stuff. I guess the first two that I can think of that are pretty prominent are Daredevil and the Punisher. Mm-hmm. And really, the line in a lot of these cases is kind of blurry because I think we're specifically talking about people who are going out and fighting kind of street level crime. That is, yeah. And who have. You don't get a lot of cosmic vigilantes except for like Ronan the Accuser. Who have. That'd be a fun story though. I know. Like or very limited powers. Yeah, you know, that was a pattern I noticed it well as well when I was making a list of like. I mean, those are the characters. White we're... male vigilantes. Like... I mean, that's just the characters we're looking at, you know, because. I mean, you can I, call I tr- Superman a vigilante because he's not really, at least in most interpretations, isn't really licensed by that is, any that is particular true. government or anything. But that is true. But I feel like with these particular characters that we're talking about, they, the word vigilante gets tossed around a lot more. Am yeah, I, am yeah, I off base about that at all? No, that's okay. definitely true. That's what we're talking about. I mean, yeah. So that, that was definitely a pattern I noticed where a lot of these like white male vigilantes did not actually have superpowers. Whereas the female vigilantes did a little more often. Like Jessica Jones um, has her whole like super strength thing going on. Black Canary, I think, is probably the best counter example. And she relies on like martial arts stuff a lot. But she also has that scream. Yep. So, yep. yeah. Batgirl's really the only one I can think of off the top of my head. And she's I mean, technically the rest of the kind birds, of a special case. Yeah, technically the rest of the Birds of Prey also. Uh, yeah, that's, count. True. that's um, true. And Black Canary, I think... Is the only one who has legit superpowers? Yeah, unless you count being trained by Batman as a superpower. Honestly, I wouldn't. <laughs> but that's just me. Anyway, I think yeah. the two I'm thinking of right now are Daredevil and the Punisher, mm-hmm. who are Back to white dudes. pretty frequently in the uh, sort of posed as counterpoints to each other, like we saw in Daredevil Season 2. Yeah, definitely. As well. Yeah. And in a lot of comics, of course. Um, yeah, and that was honestly the most... I Full disclosure, I still haven't finished Daredevil Season 2, but that was the most interesting part of the season to me. Like, the Punisher really sort of aggressively questioned Daredevil's own little weird moral code thing that he has going on. Like, it was so interesting to me that they really, like, butted these characters up against each other in a really, like, philosophically meaningful way. And then they had yeah, to yeah. kind of ruin it by, you know... Magical ninjas, orientalism, yay. So so frustrating. Daredevil is, I think, significantly different from Batman in that he... I wouldn't say he's rich, for a starter. He's definitely not. Absolutely not rich. Like, the vast majority of Daredevil, like Matt Murdock, is a lawyer, and he is usually struggling to make ends meet in some way. Yeah. Not always struggling, but he's certainly... Not financially comfortable to the degree that Batman is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like we saw in the Netflix show, he has kind of this dingy office in New York. Yeah. Nice apartment, though. 
Although they do address the um, dirt cheap rent thing on that apartment, which in a really yeah. interesting way. Yeah. So he does. He's not rich, and he's also. I feel like it's a stretch a little bit to call him disabled, because he is yeah, blind. That's a... and that is a legitimate impediment to some extent to him. Yeah, I. I'm but... not even sure I would be qualified to discuss yeah, that really i don't think true. that would be my lane but i think the fact that he has his radar sense and everything it makes him not as straightforwardly um falling into that category i guess yeah it's 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 difficult to say and i don't think we're really the ones yeah. to be the arbiters of yeah that. i mean that's true yeah so it's like in very few daredevil interpretations is his blindness a direct uh impediment to him so okay, the the I have to say, I really liked season one of Daredevil, and I found him to be, or at least I found this interpretation of Daredevil to be quite compelling. I I don't know. I think I was just more easily able to buy that he knew what the right thing to do was. That that kind of went out the window in season two. I feel like he is having a very bad run of it, I think. But, like, you see him even, like, as a lawyer fighting the exact sort of, like, economic inequality that Batman doesn't really fix as much as he should. Like, I'm... Probably my favorite character in season one was Elena Cardenas. Remember the... um, Oh, she was great. Oh, she was wonderful. And I loved her relationship with Karen. They were so sweet together. Um, No, but, like... He's, you know, helping help, helping tenants defend themselves against, like, scummy landlords and rent increases and whatnot. And honestly, like, the entirety of Daredevil Season 1 is a... It's a 13-hour movie about, like, the evils of gentrification, basically. Like, Wilson Fisk is very much a gentrifier. So, yeah. I don't know. I, I think that was partly why I found him more compelling than Batman. It's like... Yes, Daredevil has some serious, like, emotional traumas and issues and stuff like that, but I don't think they're skewing his judgment in the same ways that I see Batman's skewing his. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. and also, like, I've, I don't remember who I was having this conversation with, but I read this one review of, I think it might be the, might have been the Stick episode of the first season. On some website or another, and the reviewer claimed that guilt fueled Matt, and I just did not agree with that at all. I, the way I see it, Jack Murdoch, Matt's dad, did not want him to get into fighting at all, and I think for the longest time, guilt over feeling like he had caused his father's death was what kept Matt from fighting, from using that stick-given training or whatnot. And I feel like him starting to do his vigilante thing was almost him overcoming it and utilizing his really immense sense of empathy, like, for the greater good. That was, that was how I interpreted that. So I think, I think in a lot of ways, at least season one of Daredevil, is... It turns a lot of grimdark tropes on their heads, I think. And that's one of the big ways in which I see that happening. Hmm. But with that said, you know, like, he's still a white dude. He's supposed to be, like, Irish Catholic in the comics, right? And he would have been... Yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty sure he's Irish. I and mean, he always red-haired, so... Well, not, in, not in the Netflix but... series, although I'm not arguing with Charlie Cox's casting at all. But yeah, I don't know. Has that ever been, like, an additional wrinkle in anything... As what? Him being like Irish Catholic. Because there's a whole like history I mean, with... Daredevil's Catholicism has always been a pretty well-established and significant part of his character. Yeah. But, and okay, I think that, Catholic I guilt and various forms yeah. thereof is definitely a significant... <laughs> Catholic guilt, the Netflix ...portion series. of his characterization yeah. in many of his stories. Yeah, and especially like season one of Daredevil. Can, can, we, can we just like give a quick shout-out to Father Lantum? Because he is the other best character in the entire series, other than Elena. They're the two. Cool. They're the best. Cool. <laughs> Remember that part where he's like, want an espresso? And um, Matt passing, my father Lantum's like, good, I've already had four today. <laughs> Just like, 
<laughs> He's great. I love him. Never, never change, Father Lantern. Never change. Yep. So across from Daredevil, we have the Punisher. Yeah. Who is... Very over-the-top name. Like, sheesh. Yeah. And I'll be upfront with this. I have never found a Punisher story with the Punisher as a main protagonist particularly compelling. This just from various comics mm-hmm. I've read, and I haven't read a lot of mm-hmm. those anyway. Yeah, and did, but okay, I did find him the... a lot more interesting as a, in an adversarial role to another superhero, like Spider-Man, yeah. like how he was introduced, or Daredevil, as yeah, he was in a lot of Yeah, wasn't the Punisher characters. introduced in, I th- want to say was it was approximately like the... Like, it was a time when... Comics in general were becoming increasingly dark, like with the exception of Captain America. Like that's where I read about this in a book about Captain America. But comics in general were turning pretty dark when the Punisher came around. If you like, possibly. But when he was introduced, it was in Amazing Spider-Man as a Spider-Man villain. Mm-hmm. So, which is so weird to me. Like the Punisher feels like a much more tonally appropriate counterpoint to Daredevil. Yeah, like, but rather than Spider-Man is just he was just he's a, a straight-up villain to spider in Spider-Man books, basically. Okay, that's fair. That makes more sense. You know, not in that he was like doing crimes the same way that like Green Goblin or Doctor Octopus are doing crimes, but that he is in a Spider-Man story as a person for Spider-Man to stop. Okay. At least in many of those early interpretations. And in some later ones, there are also stories where the Punisher and Spider-Man have to work together for one reason or another. I read one not too long ago that features Spider-Man, Daredevil, and the Punisher all working together. Oh, that's interesting. In a lot of those cases, and maybe this was different in earlier appearances of the Punisher, but at least in a lot of modern cases, um, they when they have to team up with him for one reason or another, they get him to reluctantly give up his uh, killing, at least for the duration of that particular mission. Hmm. Yeah, same with Huntress, actually, in the Birds of Prey books that we read, kind of. Oh, yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Yeah, Huntress is a very different character from that, but... Yeah, but like at the same sort of, okay, no murdering people this time! Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. And just Huntress or Punjagari. Oh, man. Yeah. (laughs) Punisher is... But what if they really deserve it? Like, come on. <laughs> Punisher is an interesting foil to a lot of superheroes, but I find him less interesting as a protagonist, like I mentioned. I think just because he's a very flat, one-dimensional character. He doesn't... Yeah, by his like... very nature, it's almost impossible for him to really change as a person yeah. and still be the Punisher. And th- there are exceptions to this. I found the Punisher in Daredevil, at least... In on Netflix, very interesting and compelling. Yeah, no, I definitely but, think the Netflix series did a good, better job of acknowledging the really horrific things that happened to Frank. Probably a lot better than most stories do. Like, I mean, I think there are, I don't think there are any Punisher stories that ever really frame the Punisher in a positive way, I guess. Yeah, so, like... He is... He is a broken shell of a man, and I think almost all of his stories reflect that. I... So, I'm sure there are exceptions to this, but I really don't think any story that really examines the Punisher is... ever suggests that he's a character that is right or in any way healthy or reasonable or sane. So... Why do you think he got shifted to more of a protagonist role in the first place? Like, what prompted this shift from Spider-Man villain to, you know, protagonist in a much more traditional sense? I, admittedly, I have not consumed a lot of Punisher-related media, but I have to wonder if it's not due to sort of this same desire for like a white male power fantasy that we've touched on earlier, like brooding white dude with guns who gets to kill with impunity. Like that's I think that's gotta be an alluring fantasy for some people. And like honestly, the sheer prevalence of like Punisher mask bumper stickers that I see on pickup trucks kinda supports that theory for me. 
Yeah, I think some of the Punisher's protagonist stories, I mean, a lot of them are kind of, oh, the Punisher versus the very worst murdery criminals. And Mm. I don't know, there's like some comics. So the stories that conveniently don't explore the ethicality or lack thereof of the Punisher because he's facing up against somebody so much worse that obviously he has to kill them. Am I right? Or, like, am I off base here? In a lot of cases, yeah. I think there's sometimes more nuance to that. Like, Punisher Max, um, under the Max imprint, which is basically, like, Marvel publishing R-rated comics. Is that where Jessica Jones was first introduced? I want to say it was. Originally, yes. Yeah. I think. That's what I thought. Um, But, like, the Punisher Max comics are kind of infamous for having, like, really, really freaking scumbag awful villains. And I honestly have no interest in reading that myself, but I know there's yeah. at least one point Gritty where... realism. There's one point where, like, Punisher rescues a couple of kids from one, like, horrifically traumatizing situation or another, and his inner monologue is, like, based... is, like, just thinking, like, based on their ages that the girl who was the younger of the two would probably recover but that he thought the boy was so traumatized that he'd probably... And he has this, like, offhand thought of, like, I'll probably end up seeing him again sometime. Oh, God. And it's like, okay, buddy. I don't know. It's It feels like in a lot of those, the premises of the stories is just like, oh, we'll set up a villain who's so terrible, so Frank has one reason or another to kill them. And, well, that particular bit of it that I just mentioned shows a little more... Self-reflection, I think the Punisher usually gets it. The point is, like, he doesn't usually get that kind of self-awareness or nuance. Is that what you're saying? Am I understanding you right? I guess so. Yeah, I don't know. I think there are definitely people who read Punisher comics because they have like the they look up to the kind of that violent fantasy of oh this wants to kill people but also that they all deserve it whereas yeah there are i'm sure others who read that for a more more like introspection of the character and like is he justified in doing this when other superheroes who don't kill only end up with those people coming right back coming back and causing more pain and suffering and death yeah side note i've definitely thought about how unrealistic it is that all of the like, various criminals that Batman knocks out in the Arkham games just, like, remain completely unconscious for the duration of the game. Like, yeah, realistically, just... they would probably, like, get up again. Yeah, that's just game mechanic stuff. Yeah, and I, I know that, but also it's just like, mm, yeah, sure. And can I also... So, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Can I go ahead with the point while you... Yeah, there's, like, those two different sort of things that come out of the Punisher, and I think different stories seem to deliver on different elements of those in different ways that sometimes result in stories that might be more nuanced and more interesting and other stories that are just kind of superficial violence that is kind of one-sided and not very interesting. Yeah, and okay, so the point I was going to bring up is I feel like similar things... Like, you know how I was talking about people, like, identifying perhaps unduly with the Punisher and getting his, like, freaking bumper sticker on their giant pickup trucks or whatever? I would not trust anyone with a bumper sticker with the Punisher bumper sticker. Me neither. But you know what? The same thing. I see the same thing happening to Deadpool all the time. And, like, we, we talked in the Deadpool episode about how, like, I guess one particularly popular fanon characterization is Deadpool, the ultra-violent meme. And... I feel like the people who subscribe to that particular characterization of Deadpool and also the Punisher, like they're sort of almost like unwilling, if not entirely unable to read beyond surface level because like what they're after is the power fantasy of, oh, hey, dude with guns who kills people a lot. Oh my god, I had another point I was going to I think go to Deadpool this. is a little more... He's definitely funnier. Yeah, Deadpool has a little more going for him than just violence. 
But so often, I think that's so, what people reduce into violence and snark. And again, we like discussed this in yeah. The but episode. I think that somebody who has like a Deadpool bumper sticker or something is perhaps like, less likely to you know even somebody rage at you. Yeah, somebody who likes Deadpool even at that very surface level of like yeah, he's violent and funny is. I At mean, least that they seems, like the funny parts? That seems a little more fair than somebody who has a surface level like for the Punisher of like... Yeah. Yeah, but I still violent, feel like that, and I'm like... Mm, yeah, I still feel like that misinterpretation or like just surface level interpretation of both characters is kind of revealing in a way because what Maybe. I feel like is Sometimes going on here... Sometimes it's just like, oh, they no, just I haven't have... had... The opportunity to read those particular comics or something. I mean, yes, that's true. But the point I've been sort of been coalescing in my head over the past few minutes. Um, so the thing about white male power fantasies that I've noticed, not just with these vigilante characters, but with, you know, in action in the world today and stuff like that, is that they they hinge on this weird almost cognitive dissonance thing, this this very particular balance between absolute power and absolute persecution. In order for this fantasy to, I don't know, remain intact, it's like, how what do I put- it like? Okay, I'm gonna talk about this academic article I read a while ago, and I promise I have a point to this. It's by this guy called Chris Gabler. I'm for, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, I'm very sorry. Um, but it was called something like the Ku Klux Klan and the birth of the superhero. And I didn't agree with everything this guy said in this article. I, I think he missed a few fairly important points, but he contended that the sort of KKK vigilante fiction of the early 1900s was an antecedent for superheroes. And the sort of point of connection he identified was you know, the use of extrajudicial force, you know, the hooded KKK vigilantes in these stories, um, which were apparently pretty popular, I guess, among their like sub-demographic back in the day, were that, oh, you know, the justice system isn't doing enough, so these vigilantes must like swoop in and restore justice, except it's the KKK, so. And I guess what I'm trying to say is the sort of mindset that I see in like this very specifically a white dude persecution complex, but also like a white people persecution complex in general, is that they believe, they genuinely really believe they are being persecuted. They really believe they're the underdogs here. But the ways in which these white dude power fantasy characters, like, you know, Batman and I'd say less so Daredevil, but like the Punisher and all them especially, these white dude power fantasy characters, they really honestly exercise so much power over the like criminals and quote unquote scum of the earth that they go up against. Like Batman maybe doesn't kill with impunity, but he beats people up with impunity. He exacts quite a bit of violence on the criminals he fights, even if it's just with his like fists and batarangs and stuff. The Punisher obviously guns people down all over the place. So really that's like, a tremendous exercise of power made especially frightening by the fact that it is extrajudicial, that it's not like regulated in any way. I don't know how well I'm articulating this whole thing, but again, it goes back to like believing you're in a position with not a lot of power, but acting on the immense power you do have. It's about balancing those two like really vastly different beliefs. I'm not sure how much most of that really applies to a lot of these characters. I don't think like Batman ever sees himself as somebody without a lot of power and ability. I mean, to a degree does it because Batman is has been so drastically reinterpreted across the years, I I'd almost argue that authorial intent doesn't matter as much as audience interpretation. Like I'm, guess, I'm not, yeah, I'm, I'm not, not really one to say these... you know wholesale that the author is dead. I don't. 
I think to say that um, erases a lot of the influence that an author's, again, privilege and life experiences can have on their perspectives and on the stuff they create. But people who consume these things really have tremendous abilities to like ignore text that's right in front of them in favor of subtext or like interpret characters however the hell they want even if it's wildly against canon like the people who characterize Deadpool as this like ultra-violent walking meme I feel like willfully ignore the more compassionate parts of him am I making any sense yeah, but the difference. I feel with, like it's going like, to show that this is these are ideas I just started thinking about like ten minutes ago. Sorry, guys. Should we just? I mean, I think the difference with Deadpool, the violent walking meme, versus what you're talking about is like that interpretation of that interpretation of Deadpool is incomplete, but it's still stuff that's part of the character and part of how he's written. Okay. Yeah, I Whereas, do see that. Like Batman or the Punisher or Daredevil or any of these sorts of characters, I don't think there's any part of the character or part of the stories in there that show a system as far as, like, systematic persecution of them or their source of characters. And, I mean, I'm sure there are people who sort of superimpose that onto the characters, but... Yeah, because again, no media consumption really occurs in a of vacuum. The stories. Yeah, and I also, I also, I also think that a lot of perhaps toxic masculinity plays into people, particularly choosing to identify with these characters as well. Because oh, you know, it's not manly to deal with your trauma; it's manly to punch people and shoot people and yada da da. Yeah, of course. Yeah, so that that's feeding into it as well. I don't know. Maybe that's why with the mild exception of Daredevil, I can't... And also also of Deadpool. I can't really find these characters incredibly compelling because I think so often they end up just kind of reifying things like toxic masculinity and... Too... Yeah, not really. But also, I feel like... I think that's true to an extent, but I also think that there's a lot of... A lot more... Batman stories out there and I mean yes that's true and while everyone has some familiarity with him just through like pop culture osmosis and all that Mm -hmm. I don't think you've really read or watched most of the particularly good Batman stories that are out there in the first place yeah but what's the ratio of good Batman stories to mediocre or bad Batman stories I mean are we counting everything from the Silver Age (laughs) But, I mean, you see my point, though. Zebra Batman? What? The rainbow Batman suits? You're kidding me. Nope. Zebra Batman is... He was something. I don't remember what he Um, was. Petition to replace... uh, Oh my god, that should be an Arkham game mod. Zebra Batman. He's in the Lego... I want that. He's in the Lego Batman games. Wait. Yes, I want to play the Lego Batman games as Zebra Batman now. That's awesome. Uh, Please tell me they have Rainbow Batman, too. Rainbow Batman isn't a single Batman. It's just Batman with, like, a spectrum of different colored bat suits. The Bat Power Rangers, like, is that sort of the effect of it? I guess, but it's, he only <gasps> ever ha- can wear one suit at a time. Ah, crap. That's that's dumb. That's not... Bleh. Dumb that's things not an from, actual rainbow. Come dumb on. things from the Silver Age, Ugh. folks. Not the topic of this podcast. Yeah, anyway. All right. So I think we Wait. are short on remaining time here. So yeah. why don't we talk a little bit about some of the characters that are... I do have a couple more points I want to raise as to this particular character We've archetype. so much about Batman already. No, no, like the, it's the archetype in general, though Batman will come up a couple more times. I promise I will make this brief. Um, and I guess another thing that bothers me about, you know, White Neil Vigilante is that the character types so often appropriates like some sort of nebulous mishmash of you know eastern cultures or whatever like i tried to rewatch batman begins several years ago and i just could not take all the like cultural appropriation and orientalism and whatnot i'm not even sure i'm using that term right but um like it's oh he goes out east and learns mystic eastern arts and whatnot it's just like come on dude really and you see that 
character arc, like the the trope happens with like the shadow, the like really old character from the the thirties. He learns how to cloud people's minds so they cannot see him, and it's and it's some you know mystical trick he learned out east or whatnot. And um, for all I love Netflix Daredevil, the Orientalism is by far the biggest problem with the series. Like holy crap, it is, it is bad. So there's a there's a degree of like cultural appropriation specifically towards like non-Western cultures that does not sit right with me at all. And I feel like that's another form of like exercising, you know, white dude privilege. You know, just plundering all the parts of the culture that are useful to you personally, and we don't see any more than that. To an extent, so yeah. So there's that. I think those things at least initially existed as a way to just justify away these characters, like martial arts, outstanding capabilities and all that. But they definitely have yeah, grown in ways that aren't well. always particularly realistic, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, so there's that. Um, and I also want to point out that to sort of unify all of this all of the points I've been trying and hopefully making during this episode, sort of like the OG, you know, powerless white male vigilante superhero was the Scarlet Pimpernel. It's um, a novel written by Baroness Emma Orsi, and it's about this aristocratic dude who is saving other aristocratic people from the French Revolution, and his superpower of sorts is the power of disguise. And notably, he disguises himself as, like, various commoners and stuff like that in order to like blend in and spirit his you know rescuees away to safety or whatever and another article by chris gaveler that i read that it pointed out that there's a sort of hybridity that happens here the blending of high class with low class the of you know west with east also he doesn't specifically say that but i see it in the cultural appropriation as well like the rich white dude sort of blends the undesirable, so to speak, with the desirable. And that's sort of a, how does he say this? More of a method of, there. there's a very long tradition in Gothic literature of a weird fascination with the almost forbidden or of what we fear. And it's coming from that tradition in a sense, like taking on the qualities of what we most fear. Like, Batman does it with bats, because he's terrified of bats, but he dresses up like a bat anyway. So it's it's very weird and very particular to this trope, but that's a... There are a lot of underlying patterns here that I think merit a lot further examination. And again, maybe we'll touch on this in a future episode. Maybe we'll come back to this topic at some point. But I think there's a lot more going on underneath the surface of you know, white dude vigilante who either punches people or shoots people. Like, there are a lot of societal forces at work here that are definitely worth examining. So yeah, I have officially said my piece. Let's go on. Are you sure you said your piece? Do you more pieces? I'm sure. Anyway, yeah, right, what were so you wanting to... We can, I think, now touch on a few of the characters that you had... That we, I would guess we both have sort of laid out as counterpoints to these in one way yeah, or another. Yeah, yeah, let's definitely do that. Yeah, I guess the two pretty obvious counterpoints to Daredevil and the Punisher are their fellow defenders, Jessica Jones and Luke Cage. Yeah, it's really interesting. The exceptions that I came up with are largely white women, and Luke Cage is like the exception to the exception. So it's, it's weird. Yeah. I'm still not quite sure what to make of the racial dynamics of this whole thing. I'll have to think about that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know. None of them really follow these sort of archetypes in any direct way, I think. Jessica Jones is more of a private eye sort of character in most of her appearances. Yeah. And I would say, and I wouldn't be the first one to say this either, that the first season of her show is about her overcoming her trauma in a way Batman never gets to do, really. Yeah, I would say so. And notably, killing her abuser. That's that's worth mentioning, I think. That's certainly true. 
Yeah. Although Batman's yeah, abuser can't... ends up being... I mean, there are some different interesting reinterpretations of the particular guy who kills Batman's parents, but in a lot of ways, he's sort of a faceless cipher for the overall crime of the city. Oh, definitely. That's the, that's the impression I've gotten. Yeah. And I guess the next counterpoint is the Birds of Prey and yeah. Batgirl and the other female Bat family members. Yeah, yeah. And again, Black Canary is the only one of them that I can really think of who has an actual superpower, but she doesn't rely yeah. on it very much. Yeah. In the Birds of Prey books that we've read, and mm-hmm. this is basically just the first half of Gail Simone's run, um, Black Canary is definitely emphasized much more for her strength in martial arts than for her mm-hmm. Sonic Scream, which, you know, she does it occasionally, but it's pretty rare, at least in yeah. this uh, particular iteration of the character. Mm-hmm. So what about Wraith from Sentinels? Like, you, okay. s- you said you were yeah. going to tell so, me more about her. What's her deal? Yeah, so this is sort of a more obscure character <laughs> from a card game, of all things. Yeah. And this is something I, I we will certainly talk about at some yeah. point. Um, mm-hmm. A card game called Sentinels of the Multiverse by Greater Than Games, as well as associated games, the Sentinel Comics RPG and Sentinel Tactics. Um, they're all superhero-themed games of various kinds, and they have this whole backstory behind them, including fictionalized comic books featuring all these characters. Yeah, it's pretty great. And He's obsessed. Yeah, I am. <laughs> we'll talk about it more, I, I think, in some future capacity. And one of the characters in the core game is the Wraith, who is very much an analog to Batman in a lot of ways. I also kind of see her as an Electra analog. Like, her costume is kind of similar to Electra's, except purple rather than red. Am I off base here? I think so, yeah. I don't think she really has any relation to Electra in any direct way. Hmm. Um, and she basically has the same premise as Batman of inheriting a particularly successful company to become extremely rich and having a whole assortment of gadgets and using them to fight crime with accompanying martial arts and detective work and all that. Yeah, she's one of my favorite characters to play in that game, I will not lie. Yeah, yeah. Um, Her backstory is interesting in how it parallels and diverges from Batman. Yeah, let's talk about that. Um, So she grows up and goes to college, and her parents are still alive and still fine. Um, They run this company, Montgomery Industries or something like that. Um, Her name is Maya Montgomery. She is actually of Jewish heritage, which I think you'd find, I thought you'd find interesting. Yeah, definitely. But also, Batman kind of is too. He's accidentally Jewish, which is very funny. Yeah, but she's also not really actively observant mm-hmm. uh, very much. Um, but her sort of origin story comes while she is in college, and she is out with her boyfriend at the time. And interestingly, her boyfriend, I don't think, was ever really named or anything. But they were both jumped by some gang of criminals or whatever and beaten And while her boyfriend was killed, she survived and recovered and basically made a personal vow to herself to never end up feeling as helpless as she did again. Hmm. That is very interesting. Yeah, yeah. And her origins as of the name of the Wraith comes from uh, her father, actually, when she was Mm -hmm. a child and was afraid of the dark. Her father, like gave her a blanket as like a cloak and was like the monsters won't be afraid if they think you're a wraith like them and that's sort of where she got got oh, the basic wait, inspiration no, from. Oh that's cute. Ah, that's actually really cute. Yep. It's and like a non screwed up version of the whole angel of music thing from the Phantom of the Opera. Just take my word for it. Don't don't breed Phantom of the Opera. Don't do that to yourself. And so interestingly enough her character actually starts as just a college student um, making her own stuff without the resources of the company and stuff. Mm -hmm. After she graduates a little while later, her parents retire to travel the world or something and pass on the company to her. Um, And at that point, she has all those resources and all that high-tech stuff. 
Um, and that's where she is in when we see her in the various board games and stuff. Gotcha, but, yeah, makes sense. Um, I think it's interesting um, where her particular motivations come from and the fact that they're not some deep-rooted childhood thing or directly family-related. Yeah. Yeah, I think in a... Okay. I haven't actually read this book yet, but her backstory is actually kind of reminding me of The Power by Naomi Alderman. And, like, the whole concept of that book was what if women had the power to fight back against, you know, the various usually male assailants that have plagued them over the years? What if they had that power? What if they didn't have to feel helpless? I've been meaning to hmm. read that book for, like, a while now. And just, that that's what that reminded me of. So, like, it that particular aspect of her backstory is, like, frighteningly relatable, actually, because, like, I think most women know what it feels like to be in a situation like maybe not quite as severe as that but kind of similar to that and just feel so resoundingly helpless so in that way almost the wraith is a kind of a power fantasy character for women in that sense in perhaps the same kind of way but also a slightly healthier way than batman is for dudes i could see that yeah yeah, I knew I liked her for a reason. She also has yeah, my haircut, and, which is cool. And it also kind of... Um, Jessica Jones, I think, has some similar concepts that is, going on. That is true. And I haven't seen season two of Jessica Jones yet. We yeah, should either. definitely remedy that at some point, but yeah. there's a lot to catch up on. Oh, God, yeah. I still haven't um, seen the Defenders. Oops. I think the big thing with Jessica Jones is, aside from Kilgrave, who has... Various complications that make her just as powerless as anyone else against him. At least at first. Yeah. Because she yeah. does become immune to his powers. But even when she's immune to his powers, he still has all these horrifying capabilities that make him more dangerous and not someone she can just go and beat up. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the whole thing with Jessica Jones, you know, is... Aside from the particular super-powered opponents that she goes up against, she's very able to, like, fight back against almost anyone. Not entirely anyone, but yeah. almost. And I love... I I wasn't so hot on this at first, but it's really grown on me. I really like how her fighting style isn't all, like, you know, fancy flips and stuff. She just, like, will straight up throw a dude into another dude because she doesn't have time for any of this crap. It's yeah. kind of great. I like it. She doesn't have fancy moves because she doesn't need fancy moves. Yeah. It's more efficient that way. And I'll admit I kind of like cool fancy fight scenes. Like, you know, whatever Black Widow gets up to, whatever Avengers movie, that's always cool. But the, that sort of brutal efficiency, like the same sort of thing I see in Peggy Carter, actually, in her fighting style. Mm, Peggy will just yeah. straight up swing a heavy object at you and, and knock you down. Like, she does not give a crap. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she, like, back in the 40s, martial arts wasn't really a prevalent thing in the UK or wherever. Yeah, I mean, obviously she, like, could hold her own in, like, more intricate fights. Like, there were a few more intricate fight scenes in, yeah, like, a I couple mean, there were fights, episodes, but... There were fights that were more involved, but yeah. her fighting style was never very complex. Yeah, it, it's it's great. I, I love Peggy Carter, you guys. She's great. Yeah. And with this, I feel like we veered a little, a little off, far off. afield, but yeah. I think we have both like covered a lot of parts of this topic. Yeah, and yeah. Certainly, there's more to cover, and yeah, like, there's a lot it's... of future episodes that we'll have where we kind of revisit some of these ideas. Yeah, and I think it's worth, I guess, almost leaving you guys with more like questions to think about like i guess the underlying questions that have driven this episode is you know who gets to be a vigilante and why i think those are the really sort of important questions we i guess want you guys to be thinking about yeah because for a lot of these characters who i'm thinking like the ones who don't have superpowers the Mm -hmm. why them specifically is not as clear as it is for like why Superman? Because yeah. he has like, all these superman powers. Like, what gives you the right to impose your notion of justice on everyone else? Which I feel like is 
the question a lot of oh, people that's have a for whole a lot other, of superheroes. Yeah, that yeah. specifically is a whole other thing. Yeah, and the, but like this episode topic, like these questions that we've talked yeah, about yeah. definitely feeds into that. So, yeah. Certainly. Maybe, you know, someday we'll get around to doing that whole episode on the justice system and extrajudicial violence and yada da da da. But like, till then, this is this is a good start, I think. Absolutely. Because this is an important like part of that question. Totally, totally. So yeah. Um, with that, I think we can wrap things up. Yeah, I think so too. Cool. Right. Thanks, Thanks for, listening, for listening as always. Um, yeah, till next time. That's it for this episode of Yelling About Superheroes. For more yelling, you can follow us on Twitter at yellingabtsupers or check out our website at anchor.fm slash yellingaboutsuperheroes with dashes in between the words. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and we'll love it if you leave us a review as well. Our theme music was composed by Rodrigo Vicente, and you can listen to more of his work at hooksounds.com. Thanks for tuning in. See you next time.